Hey, podcast family, we're going to cover something in this current episode that we've talked about a lot on this channel. I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but that just goes to show that if we're talking about it a lot and we're still covering it in this episode, then it's obviously hot in press, right? Well, if that's what you think, you're absolutely right, because in this episode, we're going to cover again aspirin in pregnancy. We just did this not long ago because there's a lot of momentum here. That little snowball that keeps rolling is getting bigger and bigger and collecting steam and still powering through. Now, just to be very clear, as I mentioned in that previous aspirin episode in the past, this is not the ACOG obstetrical care consensus new guideline for aspirin in pregnancy. That is still coming out in the future. Boy, that's moving at the speed of like a toddler running through molasses. But nonetheless, it is coming out. No, no, no. But this is a little bit different. We're going to cover a new narrative review, which is taking a look at the data in an expert series in what used to be called the expert series. Now it's narrative review in the Green Journal titled, fittingly enough, aspirin in pregnancy. And even though there's no nothing really mind-blowing in this, it is kind of pushing that needle, steering the car towards a certain direction, okay? Now, remember what we've talked about in the past regarding aspirin in pregnancy. And just to be clear, the focus is going to be, of course, on preeclampsia. Even though this new narrative review touches on preterm labor and fetal growth restriction, let me just bust that bubble right now. It says, yes, hey, there's some evidence uh, that aspirin actually may help reduce preterm birth. You're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, but when you actually take a look at the data, it's a lot of, uh, of some low-quality evidence, and it likely is that it prevents preterm birth because of less inductions for, guess what, drum roll, drum roll, preeclampsia. So it looks like it's an indirect benefit for uh, preterm birth because once you stratify those who had iatrogenic delivery because of high blood pressure, aka preeclampsia with severe features, then the overall numbers aren't that impressive. And for fetal growth restriction, a lot of conflicting data there. Shorter answer is, let me just break that balloon right now. Uh, yeah, that's just not enough evidence for isolated fetal growth restriction, unless it's being used uh, with additional risk factors for preeclampsia, okay? So once again, aspirin for preterm birth, yes, but likely in the context of benefit because of preeclampsia prevention, fetal growth restriction, no, it just doesn't seem that that's a thing. So then what is really left? Well, the two big things, the two elephants in the room, which we have highlighted not long ago, are what I'm going to focus on in this episode. So what are they, guys? What do y'all think? Anyone? Anyone? Right? It is the dose of aspirin. Should it be 81 milligrams like we're currently using? Or should it be more? And in a quick hint, again, you may want to go back to the previous episode because we already talked about this, but look how validating this is because this just came out again yesterday on November the 2nd, 2023 in the Green Journal ahead of print. It's not even officially out yet. And then we're going to talk about the second elephant in the room. The first is dose and the second is universal use. How many episodes have we done talking about universal aspirin? Just put it in the water. You know my stance. I don't think this hurts anybody. I think it has a lot of benefit. So I'm definitely in that camp. And what I'm about to read to you from this new narrative review that's coming out soon officially in print is going to validate that. 
All right, everybody, so let's cover this new narrative review from the Green Journal that was released ahead of print on November the 2nd, 2023. And that first author is Jones Pulins. It's Maura Jones Pulins. So let's cover all that info right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. I went back to our archives to see when I actually did this because I know I didn't do this this long ago, and I didn't. Remember, we're in November, the second, what is it, the third day of November, second, third day of November. Oh, it's Dia de los Muertos stuff. Uh, that's kind of cool. So it's November the 3rd, and I did this one called LDA, Low Dose Aspirin in Pregnancy. The saga continues. That was on September the 26th. So let me just stop here for a minute. So you guys need to, I hope you all see this because this is actually pretty neat. Um, As I mentioned before, it's a lot of work to do this podcast. I'm not like complaining or bitching about it. I'm just telling you the truth. I mean, it's a lot of work to do this, even though we love it. We really do. It's a self-inflicted injury. We do it to ourselves um, and nobody complains because it really is our, our pet joy project. Okay. But, but think about this. So we released that on September the 26th, all right? Now, I had no idea that these separate authors were going to do this narrative review, which already had was in, in the Green Journal's peer review, uh, titled Aspirin in Pregnancy, all right? Uh, Mara Jones Peelins. Fine. So my, my point in saying this, and um, by the way, she's not the only, that's not the only author. It's, it's Mara and then Kim uh, uh, Bogus and uh, uh, T. Flint Porter as well. Uh, but my point in saying that is, the stuff that we released in an episode in September, at the end of September, and the information in that, okay, not knowing that this new review is coming out, was already ahead of the ball because a lot of that material that we covered, which we had not even seen this new uh, EPUB that was out because it just came out yesterday, uh, we were ahead of that because it just vindicates everything that we said in that episode. Basically, it, it's almost like they heard our episode, should I say that? Because uh, they may have, but of course they already wrote this. I mean, I'm sure this was written before our, our episode. But I'm telling you, it it follows like our outline almost to a T. The comments made about universal aspirin, which I'm going to share with you, uh, as well as the dose. That's our September 26th episode. So, so first of all, let, let's put the brakes right there. And you're thinking, well, then why am I listening to this one? I mean, if this new EPUB coming out uh, is what we've already heard, what's the point of hearing it again? No, no, because no, it's it's their flavor on what we already proposed, not just on September the 26th, but on multiple past episodes where we've talked about aspirin. Because as you all know, I'm very low-dose aspirin friendly, especially on the universal front. Like, just give it to everyone. Well, I'm going to read you an excerpt from this new release because they hit it right on right on the nose. And it's something that we've been saying for a long time, that unless you have aspirin-induced asthma or a severe GI issue, like gastritis or something that's you can't take a salicylate, or there's some other potential medical interaction, aspirin at this level, anything under uh, uh, 160 to 180 milligrams a day is pretty darn benign, all right? So I'm definitely all in favor of that. And so when I read this statement, and it's 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 a nice review of do we have enough evidence to go to to Universal, uh, and they present all the data, which we're going to summarize here in a minute. I I was so happy because I'm like, 
Well, that's what I've been saying all along. Ding, ding, ding! What do we have for Johnny? Yes, I know that. But I do have to say it as exciting as this author review is this narrative review in in their push um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say it in their push for a universal aspirin remember this is not the official ACOG obstetrical care consensus guideline when I did see this I did email our chair for the OB obstetric care consensus who is phenomenal I mean just and above all what a nice guy Dr. Tarantine who's here in Texas he's just down the road uh, in Houston uh, at Baylor. This is an incredible, just a pillar of maternal fetal medicine. And that guy just authors stuff like every two weeks. Now, it's not that frequent. But everywhere I turn around, I pick up some journals like, oh, Mark Tarantino, of course it is. Um, and just approachable, so brilliant. I just... I just admire so many folks, and Dr. Tarantine, Dr. T, as I call him, uh, is uh, one of them. He's like, yeah, I, I'm just said, hey, Dr. T, look at this. This is, I mean, they're on to something here. When is this aspirin, low-dose aspirin working group going to get this out? He's like, it's on the list. We know this is going to be part of the, the literature uh, search that, that's turned in uh, to the new authors for, uh, for the new uh, obstetrical care consensus. But you can see, look, all of these things, again, that snowball is collecting speed and size. So let's just get to it right away because I want to cover two things, the dose and the universal approach. So let's stick with that latter topic uh, for right now, all right? So in this review, uh, in the, one of their subheadings is the question, is there evidence to support universal aspirin for the prevention of preeclampsia? And and it goes through a lot of the data we're not going to get into. I just want to give you the, the, their kind of take-home message for time. And we've already covered this, like I said, in September. And it's amazing because coming from different roads, we, we landed at the same place, right? So you can guess where this is going. That yes, there, there's pretty good evidence for universal use and that risk stratification is, is just not enough. Uh, and that's the issue. As these authors state, risk stratification is okay, but you're going to miss a lot of people. These authors state, quote, in summary, given that more than 50% of patients in the U.S. likely meet criteria for low-dose aspirin and that clinical trials including more than 20,000 pregnancies have shown no evidence of harm, consideration of a universal low-dose aspirin recommendation in the U.S. is reasonable particularly in the setting of overall poor screening tools and poor healthcare professional adherence to screening guidelines, end quote. So uh, th there's the thing is that, look, yes, I, I get that. We can always sit there and take a look. Is it high, one high risk factor, two moderate uh, risk factors or more? Is it just a low risk that doesn't need anything? But but that's the catch is we some of us aren't even doing that. And then when we do that and we realize, oh, she could probably use aspirin, we're not of uh, bringing that to the patient's attention because there's so many other things we got to do. Are you safe in your relationship? Are you depressed? Uh, suicidal ideation, medications, right? I mean, there's so many things to, 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 to do in our checklist. And I'm a big fan of checklists, as I said before. Some people hate them. I like them because it helps us not forget anything. So just do it in a standardized way uh, and, and there's less room for error. Plus, I like how these authors rationalize this idea, which is, hey, we recommend some things in pregnancy universally. What can you think of as the main thing? Everybody should take this in pregnancy, even before you get pregnant. Folic acid, right? So folic acid is, has set the precedent for that, and that's part of their rationale that they describe in this 
push of saying again, hey, it's reasonable in the U.S. to have a universal approach, okay? Uh, So folic acid initially was given to those who were thought to be at highest risk for neural tube defect. Folic acid supplementation really wasn't for everybody when it first was pushed, both from March of Dimes and CDC and ACOG. It was like, ah, definitely for those who are at high risk. But then it became the standard universally for all pregnant patients and actually for the entire population because there's folate now a food that's fortified with, with folate. So it went beyond just pregnancy. I mean, it's, it's a universal thing for the population. So there is a precedent here for a universal application of, of a supplement and or medication. All right. So once again, these authors state that because of the lack of adherence or even though we do screen, we may not uh, uh, actually tell the patient about aspirin because, again, as we just said, there's so many things to do. If if it's just incorporated at the first prenatal visit, ideally, you would think that it would have a better capture. They also go in to talk about some cost uh, benefit. Um, analysis for that, some some cost-benefit perspectives. But the short of it is they say, you know what, based on the overall data and when you consider it either risk-based or just universal, and I'm going to read it again, quote, recommendations of universal low-dose aspirin in the U.S. is reasonable, end quote. Yes, I understand it's not a forced statement like absolutely should be recommended or this is without doubt, this is de facto proof that there's a need for universal you know, use of low-dose aspirin. But it definitely is a step in the right direction and it's the most timely because it just came out 24 hours ago. Now that we've covered the universal that, yeah, that's pretty strong evidence for it, we'll see what ACOG's obstetrical care consensus has to say because we have to follow our guidance. Remember, this is just some authors, uh, a group of authors, a narrative review based on good data and is published in the Green Journal. But let's wait to see, of course, what the official take is from ACOG. But I'm just making the point here. Look, look how this, how interesting this concept is. And plus, as I mentioned in the intro, we already covered this in September. All right, now let's get into the dose issue because in the U.S., remember that the typical dose is 81 milligrams. But that's the next question. That's the next subheading right after universal. Is there evidence for universal use? The next subtopic has uh, this leading question, quote, what is the optimal dose of low-dose aspirin, end quote. And again, I'm not going to go through all of the specifics because we really did that previously in September. In that September episode, we went through the data. Should it be 81? Should it be at least 100? Should it be 150? Should it be two of 81? So 162, uh, because we don't have 150 you know, milligram tablet here. Our, our lowest dose really is 81 as a baby aspirin. Sometimes you can find some prescriptions for like 75. but that, So there is lower ones than 81, but you definitely don't want to do that. The short of it is, after they take a look at, at all of the data and review uh, the the dose dependency, the dose response uh, on preeclampsia prevention, it's exactly what we mentioned in September. Quote, in summary, low-dose aspirin to prevent preeclampsia may have the greatest effect when given at doses greater than 100 milligrams, and this should be considered in those at highest risk of preterm preeclampsia through shared decision-making, end quote. Now, why share decision-making? Because right now, the college recommends 81. So if you're going to go do something outside of the college, it should be 
shared decision-making. But did you all get that, what they said? After they take a look at the data and there's 81 milligrams, is it 100? Is it 150? Well, it seems like the floor should be at least 100, okay? And if you remember from September, better data is for 150 or, or above, 150 to 162, but don't go past that, okay? We don't want to start getting into the 300s where potentially there's, you know, other things involved. So uh, can you use 81? Absolutely. Can you use 100? Yeah. 150? Sure. 162? Even better. Because it seems that there is a dose response effect here, right? So the higher the dose, at least 100 seems to be better to prevent that preterm preeclampsia. Because remember, the data is better for preterm preeclampsia prevention anyway, because it may not help that much for term preeclampsia. That's the bummer. And we discussed that in the past. Which raises a, a third question now that we're leaving the dose. And I know we're, I said that's all we're going to cover, but the door is open now, so we're going to walk through it. Um, so short answer for dose is yes, 100 milligrams should be the minimum uh, up to likely 162. But brings us to this question of, well, if the data really isn't there, that doesn't really help for, for term preeclampsia. It's really much better for preterm preeclampsia. Well, why, why do we give it all the way until delivery? Ah, it's a good question, right? And that's actually in here. That's the, that's that's one of the subtopics uh, in this narrative review. In quote, when should aspirin be discontinued? End quote. I'm looking at it right now, and it goes through this kind of uh, debate and this dilemma, this conundrum. That well, wait a minute. If it only prevents preterm preeclampsia and doesn't really do, it's not that great for term preeclampsia. Why do we give it until delivery? Uh, and there's two answers. One is, okay, that's that's what we're doing. That's just what the guidance says. Uh, and two, it doesn't seem to hurt. And maybe, remember our, our, our motto, the adage, it's exactly this answer. And it may be like might could help, right? So yes, even though the data is much better for preterm preeclampsia than for term, it's not uh, a nil effect. There's still some effect for term. It's just not as dramatic as it is for uh, preterm preeclampsia, especially at 100 milligram dose. Okay, so again, this is what the authors say about discontinuing all the way up until delivery, which is the current recommendation. Before we used to stop it at 36 or 37 weeks. I don't know if you remember that, but I do. Aspirin did not was not always continued up until delivery. It was just until 36 or 37, because that's what the data kind of said. Um, and then it got changed to, well, it possibly could help, so let's just keep it until delivery. And it's still that right now, right? So even though we were just, we were just going to talk about universal and the dose, I, I can't help myself because this is actually a good point. So this is not on our, on our outline, but it has to be said. Let me read you the verbatim excerpt from this, um, from this section. Quote, given numerous studies demonstrating a lack of increased adverse outcomes related to bleeding, hemorrhage, and neonatal complications. Do y'all get that? A lack of increased adverse events related to those things. So that's good. They go on to say, we recommend continuing low-dose aspirin until delivery. And we're not going to piss off the anesthesiologists. They're totally on board because the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine say, yeah, it's not a big deal. That's not going to affect, you know, spinal uh, epidural hematoma formation. So uh, they say, you do what you do, you do you, we're going to do us, and and, w- the, and the two can live in harmony, all right? And they talk about this in this section. They say, quote, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia states that they do not recommend changes to the timing of neuraxial anesthesia in patients receiving low-dose aspirin alone, end quote. So there you have it. So even though the data is much better 
uh, for preterm preeclampsia. It might could help at term preeclampsia. So it is still the recommendation of these authors, not the ACOG obstetrical care consensus, which is still to come out, even though that's likely not going to change either, to continue low-dose aspirin until delivery. Well, all right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I told you it was going to be very focused. It really wasn't going to be anything very deep. It's just kind of a review. But but I wanted to put this out because, number one, remember that that's our commitment to tell you what's hot in press, especially if it's super applicable. And this is. And then second, really to validate. I mean, see, y'all should be proud that we're all part of this podcast community on this channel because... Look, we're ahead of it. We, we've been saying this for a long time, and now this expert, this narrative review, well, it said the same thing. We said that a month before they did, so there. Plus, ACOG obstetrical care consensus is still in the works, and you know, God willing, that something happens to me, because I shouldn't say that. We will cover it at that time when that comes out as well. All right, podcast family, that's it. So for now, as always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.